Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting May 6, 2016, we speak with Ahmed H. Adam, visiting fellow at Cornell University's Institute for African Development, about his WPJ blog post on a resurgence of the shamefully long-running genocide in Sudan's Darfur region. We'll also point out top features in the New World Policy Journal spring issue, Black Lives Matter Everywhere. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, the White House says the United States and Russia have arranged a new ceasefire between the Syrian government and rebels around Aleppo. That's the city where heavy fighting in recent weeks has interrupted peace talks. It could also set off a new wave of refugees out of the war-torn country and towards Europe. Russia backs the Syrian government, of course. The Kremlin says peace efforts have been harmed by attacks from ISIS and the Nusra Front. Those terror groups are not part of the ceasefire and were not party to a prior one. Meantime, President Obama is repeating his long-held opposition to the creation of safety zones within Syria because it would mean large numbers of U.S. troops would be needed to protect those zones. Speaking of Russia, it says it will create three new divisions to counter planned expansion by the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. NATO said last week that it's sending about 4,000 troops to Poland and the Baltic countries of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, those last three nations, of course, once part of the Soviet Union itself. The U.S. is keeping a close eye on North Korea. That reclusive communist nation is holding a rare Party Congress, the first in a generation, and will elect a new central committee, which in turn appoints the party's Politburo, the very top officials other than Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un. It's expected that all of this is just a rubber stamp for Kim's cronies as the young leader consolidates his power. U.S. intelligence agencies have been looking for any sign of weakness in North Korea. There are some analysts who think Kim's grip on power isn't quite what Pyongyang wants the world to think. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Of the more than 3 million votes cast, only 71,000 people chose to have Darfur to be one region, the rest, 98%, choosing to have the status quo, under which the Darfur region has been divided into five different states. The referendum in Sudan's Darfur area last month had questionable credibility and only continued the status quo of resurgent rebellion and countervailing government genocide that has gone on there for 13 years. The regime-run vote on whether to combine Darfur's current five administrative states into one was held only in regime-controlled areas and did not facilitate voting by 3.6 million displaced internally or across the country's borders. The last thing that President Omar al-Bashir wanted, actually, was to reunite Darfur and perhaps encourage efforts to return it to the independent status that it enjoyed as a freestanding sultanate from 1650 to 1916. 
as nearly invisible or accepted as the Darfur genocide has become for Western media, despite more than 300,000 dead, including thousands more this year alone and another 130,000 displaced, is the unique status of the man behind it. It has been seven years since al-Bashir became the first head of state for whom an arrest warrant was issued by the International Criminal Court on charges of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. Yet he rules and ranges freely around his country, even dignifying the bloodthirsty Janjaweed militia with an official title, the Rapid Support Force. Also last month, the Global Week of Action Against Genocide in Darfur included protesters outside the White House demanding more vigorous action by the United States and its first-ever black president. The upsurge of genocide in Darfur is the headline on an analysis of the situation for the World Policy blog. It was written by Ahmed H. Adam, visiting fellow at Cornell University's Institute for African Development, and we spoke about it recently for this podcast. Ahmed Adam, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you, David. I'm glad for having me. Thank you. Let's start with some background. What distinguishes the people of Darfur from the rest of Sudan, and what first sparked the rebellion against Bashir? Actually, Darfur is the the, uh, westernmost province of Sudan. And Darfur used to be an independent sultanate, and that actually from 1965 until 1916, until the British actually, uh, the former colonizers, suppose, actually, of Sudan, you know, uh, killed the last sultan of Darfur. His name is, is Ali Dinar, and then actually annexed the Darfur Sultanate to the uh, current Sudan or to the modern Sudan. And, and, and Darfur actually is uh, one of the big majority in terms of population of Sudan. And, and we're talking about over 7 million that the people who live in Darfur alone, live alone actually, the people actually in different parts of, of the country. And, and, and Darfur actually has been marginalized for a long, long time. I mean, political marginalization, economic marginalization. And, you know, there is a lot of uh, historical injustices actually being, uh, you know, imposed by the central government against the people of Darfur. And that actually what led the people of Darfur actually, they tried so many times actually to, to uh, you know, to put forward their demands peacefully to the central government, especially the government of Umar al-Bashir. But Umar al-Bashir doesn't want to listen to them. And he denied them their rights and denied them their constitutional rights and denied them everything that actually, uh, you know, uh, recognized them as, 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 civilians and citizens of actually of the country. That's why actually the people of Darfur took arms in 2003 uh, against uh, al-Bashir government and al-Bashir regime. And al-Bashir in a state actually of, uh, you know, fighting the movements or the Arab movements actually, he, he destroyed the society and the community of the people of Darfur because actually he thinks that the, the people of Darfur, mainly from the African tribes or African ethnic group, groups, are supporting the, the rebels movement. That actually is his own thing. But, but it's still till now, actually, as, as you can see that in Darfur, more than, you know, you know I mean, more than 2.5 million uh, in internally in displaced persons actually in Darfur and over... Um, uh, 500,000 actually that are um, in, in, in Chad and some neighboring countries as refugees. And the fighting is continuing actually all along and, and, and a lot of destruction of life and destruction of, uh, you know, um, uh, 
the properties actually of the people on the ground, the daily bombardment, the air bombardment, indiscriminate air bombardment actually continue on daily basis. That, that was going on there actually till now in, in Darfur. But unfortunately, there is no reporting about it and there is no any media coverage actually from the international media. Tell me, Bashir is clearly not in hiding. How has he never been arrested? Uh, has something kept the International Criminal Court from even trying? As you know, David, International Criminal Court doesn't have forces or army or something like that. It depends actually on the member state or the member of the, security of the international community. And basically, the international community, namely the UN Security Council, doesn't have the, you know, required political will to arrest Omar al-Bashir. Omar al-Bashir could be easily actually arrested, but actually there is no political, uh, you know, um, uh, determination or political actually willingness from the side of the international community. And that's why the International Criminal Court uh, Chief Prosecutor uh, put this uh, straightforward actually in number of meetings in Security Council and said that actually the court, actually the International Criminal Court, lacked the support of the UN Security Council. Talk about what's behind the new upsurge in violence, what you call Bashir's final solution for his Darfur problem. Yes. Uh, right now, Bashir sees that um, there is no pressure from the international community. The UN and African Union peacekeeping action in Darfur, mission in Darfur, is hopeless because, you know, they cannot even defend themselves. And, and now the international community actually is busy with other flashpoints and other crises of the world like Syria and like, you know, uh, many places like, you know, even the issue of ISIS and all these kind of things. So the international community, including the United States, actually, they are very busy with the other crises. So Bashir sees opportunity for him to import the final solution of the Darfur question because he thinks that this is the right time, you know, for him to do that kind of thing. That's why, actually, he uh, reconstituted the Janjaweed and named them as uh, rapid support forces. And actually, they continue their massacres and his, his course as campaign all over Darfur. And I think, uh, I think we heard about Jabal Marra, and now more than 150,000 actually internally displaced persons, mainly uh, children and women, and, and that has been going on for a long time. And, and, and this, is, uh, this is the daily life of the people of Darfur, and, 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 and the absurd because also uh, Bashir uh, actually plan, uh, plans actually to, uh, to make Darfur as a Janjaweed colony, and to uh, put the Janjaweed actually in control or in charge of the entire Darfur. And this is why, you know, there is a lot of killing and a lot of uh, campaigns actually going on in Darfur. Would uniting the five current states of Darfur really give the rebels an edge? Yeah, it's uh, not just the rebels, but actually this is um, the whole thing of uh, referendum is just to regalize the status quo and that the divisions of division of the people of Darfur because the five states actually uh, establish or racial and ethnic actually lines, not actually any other actually, you know, uh, ground or something like that. So Bashir, by, by recognizing or by legalizing the current status quo of five states, actually that will, will further divide the people of Darfur, and it's not going just to stop there. Uh, further divisions, actually, and, and further, you know, uh, disunification of, of Darfur is going to, will, will continue and will come ahead. That, that's, that's for sure. This is only the beginning, because actually he think that United Darfur 
is a real threat for his power in Khartoum. That's why actually he wants to further divide the, divide the people of Darfur. But there is no referendum at all because this is a one-sided kind of process. It's not like a, a you know, process that reflects the willingness and the determination of the people of Darfur. Contributing to the resurgence of the genocide, you write, is abandonment of the region by some Darfur-based armed movements. Who is leaving, why, and how is Bashir exploiting it? Many movements like uh, Sudan Liberation Army and also Justice and Equality Movement, these are the movements that actually started the rebellion and started the armed struggle of the people in Darfur. But, you know, for some tactics and some calculations, actually, they decided actually to fight in other places uh, in Sudan rather than just to stay in the Darfur because some of them, this is, this is according to them, not you know, according to my own maybe position or something like that, but they said that, you know, uh, it is not, you know, uh, valuable or it's not useful actually to fight Bashir in Darfur. It is better to fight Bashir actually, you know, in some places near to Khartoum, near to his stronghold or something like that. But, but that actually, in a way, you know, they are not in Darfur, and that actually, uh, you know, encourage even Bashir to further advance his uh, genocidal campaign and genocidal strategy against the people of Darfur. Of course, the International Peacekeeping Force, a unique merger of UN and African Union troops, is also losing ground. Its official mandate ends in two months, and South Africa is already pulling troops out for reasons of frustration and cost. Why has the mission been so ineffective? Yes, um, it, it's a good merger, but in the same way, it's a lot of, you know, you know, competition between the two entities, between the African Union, AU, and between the United Nations, and a lot of compromise, and that compromise between the two entities to police each other and to, you know, even to accommodate each other, that actually has been all along at the expense of the people of Darfur. So that merger... It's not very effective or something like that because they always quarrel. They always actually competing each other or something like that. And that, as I said, is again it's even the mandate and, and something like that. And this is actually the the keep the AU unit. They call it unit. The AU AU and uh, UN peace, uh, peacekeeping missions in Darfur is the largest and most most expensive mission actually in the history of the UN peacekeeping operation. Yet. It's not effective at all because actually they have, the mission has been controlled by Bashir because they cannot move in Darfur. They cannot report in Darfur or make any kind of, you know, uh, side visiting or, you know, um, reporting to incidents or even, you know, violent events or something without Bashir permission. And that actually, they cannot even report what's going on actually in Darfur. This is one of the main problems. And the other thing also, they don't have any kind of logistics and they don't have, you know, even helicopters, they don't have helicopters or something like that, because Bashir also, you know, put some sort of veto against any kind of uh, full equipment for the mission or, uh, you know, full, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, provisions of any kind of uh, effective arms so that they can carry out their uh, mandate in a proper way or something like that. So, so the mission is a big failure. And that's why, you know, a lot of people actually on the ground, they said that the mission cannot even protect its own self, leave alone actually to leave alone to, to protect the people of Darfur. So the, the mission is not effective. It's, it's a compromise actually. And, 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 and it's, it's just like um, 
recognize the authority of al-Bashir, not the people that they're supposed actually to, to protect, who are the people of that force. So they failed to win the heart and minds of our people on the ground. But also, it is better, you know, for them actually to stay rather than actually to leave the country. But from what I see right now that al-Bashir is planning very hard actually to kick the, the, uh, the mission out of Darfur, and maybe that can be in two months or something like that. But this is one of the, his big uh, objectives that, you know, to, uh, to, to run this, to organize this referendum and after referendum to announce that Darfur is uh, clear of any kind of uh, rebellion, and he did that already. And the second step is, uh, you know, to evict uh, or to, to, to kick out the, the unit or the peacekeeping mission, and after that, you know, to dismantle the ITP camps or the internal displaced persons camp. Actually, has a very dangerous kind of plan, and that's why, actually, we, we call upon the international community, including the United States, to be very careful and to put a lot of pressure on al-Bashir so that, you know, the mission, you know, to stay in Darfur, but in the same time, the mission needs to be reformed and needs to be investigated because there is a lot of uh, claims and allegations of cover-up of uh, mass atrocities that have been, have been committed by Bashir forces. Beyond Sudan's borders, you see Bashir building support for his survival across the Arab-Islamic belt of sub-Saharan Africa and providing assistance to jihadists, including the Islamic State in Libya also becoming a key ally in Saudi Arabia's war against the Houthi in Yemen. Say more about that. It's, um, Bashir is actually trading on this uh, you know, regional crisis. And he always, uh, for his own survival, and he tried to say that you know, he is like um, a reliable kind of partner on the war against terrorism or something like that. But actually, he's playing the bull game rather than actually collaborating or cooperating with the international community in good faith. So while he's saying that, actually, he's supporting the United States and supporting the international community to combat terrorism, but in the same time, also, he's supporting uh, some jihadist group, namely in Libya, in Mali, because, you know, and even Boko Haram, because, you know, Khartoum or Sudan now is the main route for the Boko Haram who are coming actually from Saudi Arabia through Sudan and then they go to and kill actually the uh, sub-Sahara Africa and even this Sahir region or something like that. Also a lot of information actually confirmed that Al-Junaina, which is uh, one of the capitals of Darfur, this is in western Sudan, in western Darfur, also is like a, one of the big, uh, you know, markets for the, um, you know, army that arms actually with Shibuka Haram, they come and they, you know, buy their own arms from there or something like that. So, so he's not actually, uh, you know, collaborating in good faith or cooperating in good faith because he's supporting all these kind of groups. And, and, and this Daesh, uh, ISIS actually in Libya, also some of, of, of their elements actually come from Sudan and with the support of Khartoum, you know, security forces. And this has been going on for a long time. So Bashir believed that if there is the crisis actually in the region, that actually will, will take the attention from him. That will make the international community cooperate with him or, or treat him as a, as a reliable partner. And that will make him, you know, give him some sort of uh, diplomatic gains, financial gains, and even political kind of gains or something like that. This is his own strategy uh, in the region. And he thinks also that, you know, if the Islamists or jihadists actually in the region, powerful in the region or something, that also will work for his own you know, survival tactics. 
and this is this is the game that has been you know playing for a long time you know also has some destabilization you know kind of strategies and policies and plans in the region now his role in south sudan is not helpful at all is keeping that country unstable because he's supporting some of the rebel groups actually in south sudan as well and this is also the same case in uh, central uh, republic of africa car and also the other state in libya and in many places so uh, the international community really needs uh, you know to 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 look very carefully you know about al-bashir records and al-bashir activities actually in the region besides looking more carefully what sort of robust international action do you see as necessary and really possible at this point at this point because there are more than 20 uh, un security council resolution regarding darfur May, for example, there is a resolution of disarmament of the Gangawit, and that has been going on since 2004 and 2005, but it hasn't been implemented. And that resolution, UN Security Resolution, put it very clear that Gangawit has to be disarmed, dismantled, and you know their leaders has to be have to be brought to justice. But that hasn't been implemented since 2004. And also the uh, the other issue also regarding the uh, peacekeeping mission. This peacekeeping mission unit need to be actually supported and need to be reformed so that actually to be effective in, in terms of implementing its own mandate to protect the people of Darfur. And also the other issue also is very important, the no-fly zone is very important because the international community implemented that in Libya on the ground of protection of civilians and, and, and civilians in Darfur and in Nuba Mountains, actually, they are dying on daily basis because there is a lot of indis- there are indiscriminate attacks, actually, against the people of Darfur and other places, actually, in the war zone areas as well. So what we need also, a no-fly zone should be implemented, actually, over Darfur. This is one of the things. And the other thing also, people of Darfur right now, because of the ongoing uh, scorched earth campaign and the ongoing of genocide, they need an immediate humanitarian access. Right now, al-Bashir evicted in 2009, evicted more than 13 international humanitarian organizations from Darfur. They used to provide food, shelter, and medicine. They are not there anymore. And right now, as I said, more than uh, 140,000 displaced actually from the uh, recent uh, military operation by Bashir and his Yingawid militia. And these people, they don't have any kind of humanitarian access. So the international community needs to put it very clear to Bashir to allow the international humanitarian organization to access, you know, Darfur so that they can provide, you know, food and shelter to the needy people on the ground, including women and children. This is one of the things that are very important. The international community also should be very clear that UNIMIT should stay in Darfur because al-Bashir right now is planning actually to... Uh, to evict And the other thing also, they put pressure on al-Bashir so that to stop the ongoing, actually, harassment and violation against the ITPs because, actually, as they said, had a strategy to dismantle the ITP camps. More than 2.5 million, actually, in the ITP camps, camps right now. So there is a lot of uh, work the international community needs to, to do. And because, actually, the international community, as they said, has a lot of, uh, you know, uh, UN Security Council resolution, European Union also they issued many resolutions regarding Darfur. The African Union also issued many communiques actually regarding the situation in Darfur and regarding the protection of civilians on, on the ground. They need actually to implement that as soon as possible. This is one of the important. And they need actually not to abandon Darfur. What we see right now, they are not actually making any, you know, uh, you know attention, putting any attention about Darfur. There is no even statements about what's going on in Darfur in terms of violation against civilian population on the ground. 
Some of the protest leaders at the White House last month were demanding that the U.S. send special forces, quote, to assist the situation. Does that make sense to you? And, and what else do you think Washington should and could do? The, what, what Washington, as I said you know, before, you know, Colin Powell, the former Secretary of the State, he, he classified and defined the situation in 2004 in Darfur as a genocide. That's supposed actually to be followed by, by a change of policy. Because, you know, according to Genocide Convention of 1948, when you say or you classify or you define a certain situation as genocide, you have to act to prevent it or to stop it. What we need actually from the United States is, is you know, to take concrete measures to stop what's going on in Darfur. Right now, it might not be, you know, realistic, you know, for many that the United States should send troops or, you know, foot on the ground actually in Darfur or something like that. But what we need is, you know, to reform and to support UNIMED. The peacekeeping operation is already on the ground. That needs actually to be supported and to be actually reformed and to be actually, you know, is, um, you know uh, provided with, uh, with the necessary weapons and necessary logistics so that, you know, to implement its you know, uh, mandate on the ground, and that mainly to protect the people of Darfur on the ground. That's one of the main things. So this is, and, and the implementation actually of the Security Council resolution, and also the arrest of al-Bashir himself, because, you know, the failure of the international community, you know, made the, the uh, encouraged al-Bashir actually to spill over the genocide, you know, to Nuba Mountains and Blue Nile. So what we need from them is, you know, the Security Council resolution, that issue, it, they need actually to put it, you know, on the ground and to implement it in, in properly and fully. Ahmed Adam, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. Ahmed H. Adam, a visiting fellow at Cornell University's Institute for African Development, is also a research fellow at the Department of Public Policy and Administration at the American University in Cairo. His recent post for the World Policy blog is headlined, The Upsurge of Genocide in Darfur. Featured in the new WPJ Spring issue, Black Lives Matter Everywhere, you'll find articles about black power in the French band news, race and revolution in Cuba, plus the unintended consequences of India's war on sex selection. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal, at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.